Well, I do wine a lot. It's a, it's a nice quality. I mean, last time I was here and talking about Jesus being a Republican and a Democrat, and that was a hard sermon, and I whined about that part of it. And, and now today, here we are, and it's the last in a series of marriage myths. And this one is the myth, making love is easy. Kind of want to go back to the politics, right? I mean... Actually, it is, it is a difficult topic. I'm not going to say anything other than that. But what I will say alongside of it is that I'm not sure there's that many places that I would truly want to engage in this subject. But one of the reasons why I really am actually not just reticent, but excited to engage in it here is because I've spent the time with Kevin and Joel and Andrea and Carol and, and Mike and the whole staff. And when we start talking about these things that can really touch the deep places of the human spirit, it can bring up some old pain. It can bring up some of those things that maybe we've held on to for a long time and wonder if life is always going to be that way. And what I love, love about working with everybody here is that there is this sense that there is nothing outside of the realm of the kingdom, that the kingdom can come and transform and redeem. It doesn't mean it's a magic wand. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. But it does mean that the kingdom of God is real and it's possible. So my prayer, and we'll pray in just a minute, uh, even around some of that, that as we talk about some of these things and making love is easy. And the myth of that, that if stuff does begin to rise up in you around uh, just some different parts of your own journey, that there is a trust level here, that there is a, a concern and a care and an understanding that the kingdom of God can redeem. Okay, so jumping in a little bit, and when I first heard this myth, making love is easy, one of my first responses was, well, of course that's a myth. I mean, you know, making love is not easy. But then I stepped back and thought about it a little bit more, and I thought, well, you know, from the messages that we get regularly from Hollywood and the scriptwriters, and from Madison Avenue and the advertisements, is that really, actually, making love should be really easy. You just need to look the right way, say a few clever things, and by all means, drink the right beverage, and it all sort of sorts itself out great. It's a walk in the park. But then I thought about that critically for a moment as I was thinking, well, it is seems like a myth, and yet on the other hand, it seems so easy. How can I critically think about that? Well, I, I started evaluating just Hollywood and Madison Avenue in general for whether or not they had credibility in their authority on anything. So that called my mind back into movies I've seen, like this one, Mr. Johnny Rambo, who's somehow able to, and many movies like that one over the years, these guys are somehow able to take on legions of enemies and come out victorious on the other side with nothing more than a pocket knife from Cabela's. That's realistic. Then I thought about how many times I've watched Hollywood movies and, and the, the woman just sort of rolls out of bed in the morning, this just lovely picture of grace and, you know, it wasn't just a normal night's sleep, it's like she woke up and her whole night was at an Aveda spa with exotic stone therapy and just heat. Yeah, that's realistic. And then this one really tweaks me, but uh, it seems, the movies that I've seen, that men are always able to somehow find the exact right phrase in the exact right tone, produced at the exact right moment with cleverness and intelligence that somehow dissolves all relational tensions and produces the happily ever after moment. 
That's realistic. <laughs> Saying to Kevin earlier, I kind of wish I had a Hollywood scriptwriter following me around throughout the course of my day, right? If Hallie and I are engaged in a bit of tension and they can just kind of speak over the top of me and all oh, is good. I never think of these things until three days later. Well, then there's Madison Avenue on the other side of it, deconstructing Hollywood credibility. Now we have uh, the advertising that we see in on the television and on billboards and, and in magazines. And, and we recognize that that is certainly just, you know, emerging from real life. What is portrayed there is absolutely real. If I just have enough of the right kind of drink in my fridge and perhaps hundreds of cans of it, all of life will be good. An iPad should be able to resolve every existential need that I've ever had. Just slide the little bar and it all appears. Must be true. Whatever Madison Avenue says has that ring of credibility to it, doesn't it? They would never be anything less than straight with us. You know, it's all uh, actually quite disturbing, I think, you know, when you look at the video. And I think even about my kids growing up and what they're seeing and what they note and, and just the, the, the credibility we do often afford Hollywood and Madison Avenue to speak into our lives and what is real. And so then we come into this place of our sexuality, our union, our, our making love as easy. And one of my hopes for this morning as we now move into prayer and get into the bulk of the sermon is that maybe with some measure of finality, we as a people of God can reject that Hollywood or Madison Avenue would have credibility on this issue and not only reject it, that, but we could become the kind of people that can articulate well and live in the reality of what it is that we're called to in our one flesh unions and healthy sexuality, not just for us, but for our kids and our kids' kids too, that there can be another voice in our culture. I often think about the fact we spend so much time um, trying to address what's happening out in the culture in marriage and that we, we need to speak against all of those things. And I, and I think we should do that. But I wonder if some of what we need to do as well is to step back and turn and look inward and look in the mirror and be a part of a people who are in increasing fashion growing in our health with us so that our children not only are trying to reject out there, but they can look here and say, oh, that's what this is all about. I get it now. That's what this is all about. So that's my hope for this morning. Let's pray as we get started. God, I ask uh, again for this time in this place and among us as people that you would move by the power of your spirit to set free some of the places that maybe deep inside that have been just shut down and that you would breathe new life into that, that the echoes of Eden for which we were created would not be faint any longer, but would come out and resound in their fullness and that we could be people who, as scary as it is, um, can begin to ask the kind of questions about what it is that we're called to and what it is that we are designed for. And that by the power of your spirit, you could bring health and new life to this. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. And with a flourish, that prayer is prayed. <laughs> you know, it's funny, in, in my college classrooms, we have a rule that whenever your cell phone rings, and it's a rule, and I'm subject to it too, that whenever your cell phone rings, you have to answer it. <laughs> so we'll stop right in the middle of class, lecture, whatever we're doing, and the student has to answer their phone, and we all get to listen in. And it's fabulous, and I've had to do it. Myself, if a text message comes through, we as a class get to decide what the text back. <laughs> hmm, it makes for a lot of fun. <laughs> 
So if my phone rings this morning, I will I will stop. But let's uh, here, let's jump in uh, this morning. And as I thought about this subject and this myth, making love is easy. There were any number of directions to go with this. And as you even just start unpacking the box a little bit, there's a lot of specifics that you could get into around this. And and some of my hesitation in even talking about it is that I know that some of the specifics of a given journey and the pain and the turmoil and the heartache that is there is going to be revealed. And, and sermons can only do so much. They can only talk in broad strokes, which is why I said I know that the people here can walk through the specifics and that the kingdom can bring wholeness to those places. And so as I thought about it, what would be sort of these overarching themes that could be helpful in our understanding? There were two that I landed on. Okay? And the first one is simply this, that one of the things that I think can make this idea of making love difficult is I wonder if we really understand what it is, this idea of one flesh, that maybe you've heard about that. Uh, I know for me hearing about that particular phrase, the only uh, text in which I've heard of that phrase was maybe in a wedding, you know, some romantic notion that the two will become one flesh. And that's really all I've ever heard about it. But it seemed to me that if this one flesh is that to which we're called, it might be helpful to try to understand it in its fullness, to walk into it in greater ways so that uh, we, we could maybe transition from making love is so hard. We don't even know what we're doing. We don't even know what, what we're What is at stake here? What is it that we're called to? What does one flesh even mean? Well, even as I thought about that, Trying to get in this subject was difficult because, as I said, I didn't have a lot of teaching on this in my Christian journey, and I've been a Christian since I was five. It was something that just wasn't talked about. The, 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 the messages of Hollywood and Madison Avenue were so much more part of my journey. And when you hear things like union or one flesh or all of that, I don't, I don't have a category where my brain goes to as to what this means. But what I found scary this last week as I thought about it is as difficult as all of that was, it only took me about five minutes to come up with eight different messages from our culture about what it is, every one of which was, to some degree, it seemed a distortion. Let me read through some of them for you. One flesh, sexual union in our culture, and I hear this stuff even at Bethel and Northwestern. It's merely something physical. It's an act appropriate for just one night with perhaps even a relative stranger to fulfill whatever desire comes upon you. Second, sexual union can be used to determine compatibility before you make that final commitment. We better make sure we're compatible in this way before we take the vows. I hear that often. Third, sexual union can be entered into with no strings attached. The joint venture of two friends even willing to use one another for a night. Fourth, it can be used a bit as a weapon to try to gain commitment, a deeper commitment from someone else. You're not really sure about the relationship. Do that. That'll drive a deeper commitment. Fifth, the sexual union is only possible for the funniest, brightest, and cleverest, those with the right shape, curve, or size, personality defined by a culture. And you better be good at it, whatever that means. Six, and this one is interesting to me, I often hear it in our Christian communities too, uh, that, that sexual union is primarily an activity for men. It's a male-driven kind of thing. And, you know, maybe the women don't enjoy it so much, but they give it uh, as a sense of commitment and sacrifice. 
Maybe we need to poke at that just a little bit and wonder, what was it really only for men in its design? Seventh, uh, sexual expression and choice is in the eye of the beholder. And who is anyone else to say what constitutes rightly ordered sexuality? I will decide when and with whom this will happen. Can't judge. An eighth, sexual union inside a marriage covenant certainly must be boring. One person for the rest of your life? And you know, the further you go through marriage, the less relevant it is in the relationship, right? One flash union, that sort of thing, that's really only for the young, for the energetic. We're kind of past that now. Older people should never do it. I was talking to my dad uh, yesterday about this, and you know, I can't hardly get her head my head around her. Right? I mean, my dad's older than me, quite obviously, and I'm like, ooh, I don't really want to think about that. And, and uh, you know, I have one brother, and I've sort of come to grips with this whole thing by realizing, probably in denial, but realizing that uh, he and my mom only did that twice. <laughs> that was enough. Well, I don't know if those messages sound at all familiar to you. They are part of my world, again, just being at a place like Bethel and Northwestern. We talk about these things. Often. But I find them in the church, too. And and what's interesting is so pervasive the messages have become, it seems. So many are the lies. So much is the hurt that's part of this in the journey of our married life. That it seems like what it was that we're called to, this wonder, this this powerful reality, the echoes of Eden that, that still persist in this day, I wonder if some of that is lost. And maybe one of the bigger reasons why making love can be difficult in the context of the journey is because we've simply forgotten what it is that we're called to and the power and the wonder of it. So I'm going to do the best I can in just a couple of minutes, but I find it even hard to talk about what this one flesh mystery is. There's parts of it that just escape language. But I read a couple of theologians over the past even few years as I've explored this topic more fully uh, and tried to understand some of it. One was a theologian by the name of Frederick Bruner. And he said, one flesh is a profound spiritual interconnection between a man and a woman where two people are now so interwoven with each other that for all intents and purposes, they are completely a part of one another. I love those words. We touch each other's sense of self, the essence of one another, the identity that's there, the fears and the joys, the brokenness and the wholeness, all experienced in those moments in some weird, mysterious way. And that touch tends to linger. It creates a bond between people. I was moved as well by the words of theologian Peter Kraft, who says this, that the one flesh relationship is the image of God. It's a foretaste of that self-giving, the losing and the finding of the self, the oneness and the manyness that is the heart and the life and the joy of the Trinity. It's what we long for, he says. This is why we tremble to stand outside of ourselves in the other, to give our whole selves, body, mind, spirit, and soul. It seems powerful when I just even start thinking about it. It makes me wonder, are all these messages there that distort, knowing that Satan is here to steal, kill, and destroy? Are they there to prevent us from even getting even a whiff of that kind of thing, because how powerful could it be? You know, Hallie and I have been married for a little over 17 years, and the vulnerability we've shared with one another over those years has been sometimes a cause of great joy. Sometimes it's been a cause of deep wounds 
And it's funny because even in giving the sermon, there's part of me that says, you know, just step down off of this elevator. I'm just right in this journey with you in this. Like any marriage, we've experienced all of that. But what I find interesting when I step back for just a moment and think about this just for for a minute, uh, there's something there. There's actually I recognize a bond there between Hallie and me. Might sound sort of kooky, but that but the space feels different when she is around me. I sometimes wonder if I can close my eyes in a given room and I could tell you if she was in the room or not. So familiar, not just to my sight, but so familiar that she is to me and her presence. And her presence is different than any other I have in my life. She is my oneness and my manyness that reflects the heart and life and joy of the Trinity. And the sad part is, is I can so often lose sight of the wonder of that. So real are the rigors of marriage. So often are the subtle struggles for power. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That I can so often lose sight of that. And the journey keeps going and going. And pretty soon, the echoes of this one flash tend to start fading away of what we're called to from the Eden story. You know, sometimes I wonder if maybe one of the most helpful things we can do in our marriages and on this subject is to actually just sit down as a couple and spend regular time exploring what the idea of one flesh truly means in conversations and in prayer and in studying the word. I want to say practicing too, but I can't decide if I should say that out loud. But, you know, to the extent that we do this, I I find something interesting begins to happen. There are these echoes, and I keep using that phrase, the echoes of Eden. You see, deep in our DNA, I get it, that that sin has entered in, and there is distortion and brokenness, and we live east of Eden. And yet deeper than that, because we come from the hand of God, there are these echoes that persist, where it says that he created them, man and woman, in one flesh, then when they come in and, and engage with one another. Christian musician Stephen Curtis Chapman says it this way. What is it about a kiss that makes me feel like this? What is it about my heartbeat that it goes faster when I'm in your arms? What is it about your touch that amazes me so much? How is it that your sweet smile can get me through the hardest smile? What's the magic in your eyes that brings the love in me alive? See, this is the kind of thing I want when I'm 90. Is it possible? Is it possible? What is it about this dance, the sweetness of our romance, that makes me feel this way? You know, these are the echoes of Eden, reflections of what we are created for, hints of the passion and the freedom that awaits on the other side of heaven's door. These are the echoes of Eden, where the man and the woman looked across from one another, and he exclaimed, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And for this reason, the two will come together, and they will be one. So maybe, just maybe the first thing that may make making love so difficult for us is I think sometimes the echoes of the garden have faded. The pain is real. Walking out the journey of life and the rigors is real. But what would it be like? Is it possible? Is it possible for those echoes to come back into our present, whether we've journeyed for five years or 50 years? What would it be like to have the wonder of the oneness and the manyness that is the life and the joy and the love of the Trinity be manifest in who we are as people? And what would that mean for the world if we could figure that out?
Well, and the second thing now this morning, and it occurs to me that, uh, you know, even if we should say yes to that, and even if there's something in there that's also in there for me, that is, yes, I want that. That is what I long for. Even should I say, yes, I want to explore that. There is going to be in every step of the way as we walk towards a greater understanding of one flesh, some dynamics in our relationship against which we are likely to struggle. So even if I say, yes, I want to pursue that, and then you start pursuing that, it's like, whoa, something is at play. And here's where we can turn back to the Eden story again. I talked about the one flesh, but it goes beyond that to this moment when there is this massive wedge driven between the woman and the man as they begin to struggle with power in their relationship. We'll talk about that story where the wonder of their mutual love was replaced by this struggle for power. I don't know if any of you have ever had a power struggle in your marriage for those of you that are married. I never have. You know, see, when you get a PhD, you just realize that you're just right all the time, so there's no more struggle for power, right? I mean, <laughs> see, my wife's not here at the second service, but she'll get the tape and then we'll have a quick conversation. Well, if you have struggled with power, I think it's helpful, at least on some level, whatever that power has looked like, to recognize that there's more to it in the story. And before getting into Genesis 3, which we'll maybe look at in just a second, there's this end to Genesis 2 that talks about the way the man and the woman were meant to interact with one another. There's this great phrase after it says that the two shall become one flesh. Then the last verse after that is that the man and the woman stood naked and unashamed. Okay? Or in this case, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And that's critical for understanding how we were made and how we can walk in the one flesh relationship effectively is this phrase, naked and unashamed. Now, I don't know if you were here last year when Becky Patton spoke on this particular phrase uh, and what it means in the Hebrew language. But I know for me, I find it really interesting and I think it's helpful to get into briefly here. Uh, I know growing up, if I would have heard this phrase, naked and unashamed, I think now, and even as I project into my life today, what it would have meant was something along the lines of perhaps my two-year-old, Simon, who was in the tub, you know, right? And all of a sudden, for reasons unbeknownst to me, he'll decide to climb out of the tub and just run streaking through the house with nothing but a fabulous grin on his face, right? <laughs> and he's not potty trained yet, really, he's not. So I'm like, dude, get back in the tub! Um, <laughs> And he's naked and he feels no shame about that. And so that's, you know, I guess if I would have really thought about it and kind of made connected the dots, I would have been like, well, that was probably how it was like in the garden. Because I don't really want to think about it that much. But however uh, we think of it, in the original Hebrew, naked and unashamed literally means, among other things, to be fully open and vulnerable to the power of God and to one another. In the Hebrew, it means fully open to the power of God in one another. So there's a sense in which the man and his wife, they could enter into the wonder of the one flesh relationship because they were fully open and vulnerable to one another. How could they do this? Well, they lived in a place where there was no fear. They had not yet grasped the fruit. The sin had not yet been unleashed. They could be fully themselves, bringing all of who they are to the table and experience the wonder of that intertwining, that interconnection that is the one flesh union. Can you imagine being in a marriage where with reckless abandon, 
you can fully give yourself to the other. Most of us have a hard time, frankly, thinking about that. There are dimensions, again, we'll talk about them in a second, that make that sort of thing difficult. But yet, it is marriage where we need to struggle through those things. You know, sometimes my students will come to me and they will say, Capsner, why, marriage is so old-fashioned. Why would we even bother? I mean, you know, why can't we just now and it's fine and all of that? And I tell them, you know, and maybe I'm a sap, but I've had a chance to do a number of weddings and I'm always incredibly moved in those moments. And I think moved by something just outside my own sentimentality. When the man and the woman stand across the aisle from one another and they look into each other's eyes and they say, here's the deal. No matter what happens, no matter what I find, no matter what our journey turns out to be, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in that word forsaking, there is the sense of I will always cherish you. Now I get it. I get that the vows have been broken so often and it causes unbelievable pain. I get that. But in theory, if that's really true, if that person really says, I will never leave you, and in fact, in not leaving you, I will even always cherish you. I won't forsake you in our marriage. I will cherish you. Well, now maybe, maybe I can come out from behind my fig leaves a little bit and open up and begin to be the kind of person with you in which I am fully naked and unashamed, vulnerable and open to the power of God. And then the echoes of Eden start coming back into our present. But that is exceptionally difficult. (laughs) Marriages are hard. And it's hard not just because of our own dynamics and what we bring to the table, but they're hard because there's something cosmic at play as well. And we can talk about that briefly. I'm going to try to teach uh, you through Genesis 3 just a little bit to get a sense of what's there. And, and, and the forces against which we're struggling here are more than just whatever the dynamics are of our relationship. So Genesis 3 says this, and I'll kind of skip through parts of it because it's a long section. But the serpent was more crafty than the other wild animals. Did God really say, yes, the woman, you must not eat from the only tree in the garden? Uh, God did say, you must not eat of the fruit, says Eve, uh, from the middle of the tree. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman. You know the story. But here's a key part. For God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's going to be the core of the temptation right there, to be like God. And when she saw it, and that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and for gaining wisdom, which literally means to see the way that God sees, to have that godlike divine capacity, she took some of that fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then indeed the eyes of both of them were open. They could see good and evil in its fullness. They, they could see that maybe they could have some capacity or power, or so they thought, in that. And they realized that they were suddenly open and vulnerable. Whoa! So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And of course the man then answers, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were open and vulnerable like that? How did you even know that you could be fully yourself? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, "Um, well, the woman you put here with me, 
She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she blames the serpent. And then we move forward in the text a little bit to this part right at the end where he's speaking directly to the woman, but to both of them in some way that we'll see in a minute. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And right here in this phrase, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, is where we find the core, the beginning point of the epic power struggle that has existed between men and women basically for all time. You see, first of all, the reason why they hid and why that was their immediate reaction after taking the fruit is that why were they taking that fruit? They were grasping after God-likeness. That was something that was not meant for them. These are God's creatures, and they're grasping after a God-likeness that says, you know what, God? I got it. It's fine. I can handle good and evil for myself. And when that happens, their eyes are open. And Adam and Eve were meant to co-rule together under the wonder of God's care to bring the good of his creation into its fullness, together in this place of being naked and unashamed, fully trusting one another in that process. When you grasp of the fruit and you believe, hey, I've got it. (laughs) I've got the right way to think, act, be, know. This is the right way for life. Suddenly the person who is your partner becomes what? They become your competitor. And they become the great antagonist in all of this. And what I know about power struggles, having walked through them myself, is that there's a sense in the relationship that this person may be there to try to control you or you may be to them. Are you going to be fully open? No, you're going to hide. You're going to hide and try to control from that place. Making love in that kind of context, bringing love into this world, you can't do it when you're folded up like that. It's very difficult. And so they hide. And Hallie and I have experienced that hiding for for seasons of our life where pain has been part of our journey as we try to unwind dimensions from our past and wonder why do we have the same patterns of interactions and dynamics and why do we continue to even just hurt one another with our words and what is going... And pretty soon the echoes fade. But as bad as that is, it gets worse as we read further in this Genesis 3 story about the woman's desire for her husband and yet he will rule over her her. Growing up, I think I I often heard this passage explained along these lines. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but it's along these lines of, well, you know, (laughs) look what happened here. The woman fouled it all up. I mean, she was sort of just, you know, this theological dunderhead that was walking through the garden and going, oh, it's all fine. And the serpent came and said, here's the fruit. And she said, oh, that looks great. And she took the fruit and ate it. And, you know, we better prevent that from ever happening again. Right. And so we're going to put the man in charge. (laughs) Well, the problem with that is that when you actually look into the Hebrew language and what's there and being played and exegetically go through the text, it's nearly impossible if not outright impossible, to get that reading from the text. There's three reasons for that. First of all, this statement that God is making, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, is being said in the context of a curse. So whatever is happening there, it's not good. Okay? Secondly, the husband, well, he seemed relatively happy to eat the fruit as well, right? (laughs) Yeah, maybe he should rule. And third, and this is most importantly and most exegetically responsible, I would argue, is that the verb tense in the Hebrew reveals that what's at play here is a massive power struggle that's going to ensue. And the reason why I say that is when you read the tense of the language there, it is not, and hang with this for a second, it's not prescriptive. 
It's descriptive, meaning God is not prescribing what should happen. Okay, now that sin has come into the world, he is simply describing what will happen now that you've eaten of this fruit. He's not prescribing that the man should try to rule over, that the woman will desire. He's just simply describing uh, this is what's going to happen now that you did this, that you both bit into God likeness, because the word for desire there in this text is not this word where the woman just desires her husband. Oh, I can't wait to be with him. Isn't it going to be great? I so long for him. It's so fabulous. The word desire in the Hebrew there is a desire for mastery and control and domination. Domination. <laughs> and it's the same word that's used in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 4, just one chapter later, where God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, be really careful because sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you. In grasping after the God likeness, there's this desire, I must master you, I must control you because I can't trust you anymore. And if I can't trust you for sure and you are my antagonist in this, my best option is to control you because then I will feel like it's all ordered again. And, of course, the male part of this rule over you piece, the rule over piece, would have this sense about it uh, of subduing or even conquering an enemy. Why that is, I don't know if it's just sheerly the physical strength over the generations. It's interesting to look throughout cultures and times and just see how oppressive this whole thing has been in the way that men have ruled in their subduing, conquering sense. It wasn't meant for that. They were meant to co-rule as partners, in the wonder of being naked and unashamed, bringing all of who they are to the table, all of the ways in which God wired them to bring the good of creation into its fullness, and in that, turn to one another and experience the wonder of one flesh together. But this is a power struggle that will ensue because both want to be like God. You see how this would wreak havoc on our ability to make love, which is decidedly other-centered, which is decidedly self-sacrificing, which is decidedly something in which you're looking out for the best in the other, coming underneath the other in those ways, to the extent that these power struggles have manifested themselves in whatever way in your relationship. And I know the ways they have in mine. It makes it really difficult to enter into the fullness of the one flesh. So then the question becomes, what do we do? How do we walk this out? If this is to any degree true of us, what can we do? As I thought about that, there really came to me about two choices, really. And the first choice is that in the fear and the wonder and trying to figure out what to do, you can continue, and I can continue, down the road of control and power. I can try to get a little bit better at it. I can try to make sure that I get my way a little bit more. I can try to manipulate the circumstances. And I may not leave my marriage. Of course I'm not, you know, right? Because you just don't do that sort of thing, apparently. But I may not do that. But maybe what I'll do is a sort of just negotiate a truce with my spouse and walk out our journey the rest of that way. Has anyone ever seen relationships where, or even experienced them yourselves? I know I have to some degree where basically it's a negotiated truce where people will say, the husband, well, this is what I want and this is what she wants and, and we'll support one another in that, but just keep your power. We'll negotiate a truce and we'll walk this out for the rest of our journey. Is that the oneness and the manyness that is the life and the light and the joy of the Trinity? To have two parties, almost like separate countries, right? Negotiating a truce. You keep your power, I'll keep mine. We can do that. 
we do do that. There's another choice. I'll make no bones about it. It's a very scary choice. I, I know the pain of relationships. And it's as scary as it gets, but there is yet another choice. And that choice is, in the midst of the pain, and the hurt, and the turmoil, and the faded echoes of what we anticipated in the journey, we still, as people, can yield. We can yield. And we can surrender again. And we can give it all up. And even though the hurt is legitimate and the pain is real, we can still somehow, in some crazy way, yield in that. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but uh, yielding seems to be one of the primary postures of those who claim to follow Jesus. You really want to be a disciple. I find it really interesting, and I think quite intentional, that there's two main garden stories in our text. There's the Garden of Eden story where the two beings who had no business grasping after a God-likeness did it anyway. And in that, they unleashed this torrent of sin into this world so that those who follow will continue to be plagued by that very reality. That's what was unleashed in the one garden story where people who are not God-like still grasped after it. And thousands of years later, there came another garden story. And this time it was the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was one in that garden. Well, he was God-like. He had all of that. And he could have hung on to all of it. And yet in the wonder of the Philippians text, chapter 2, in which Paul writes this, you know, you want to follow? Your attitude should be the same as that as Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be hung on to. And he let it all go. And he took on the form of a human servant, being made in the image of humankind. He walked out the journey. He had legitimate pain, legitimate hurt, legitimate uh, misjustice done, and yet somehow he let it all go, and he walked it out to the cross. And in his death of yielding, new life came. New life was unleashed in this world. The grasping after God-likeness yielded this plague on humanity. The letting go of God-likeness brought the life back to humanity, the life of God was once again made possible of the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control that is now life in the spirit that has been unleashed among his people. But make no mistake, to yield will cost you everything. All sense of pride, all sense of legitimate hanging on to stuff, all sense of I don't even know if I can trust this person. And yet in those places the waters of life come. Marriage is filled with legitimate hurt, pain, and disillusion. But if we really want to make love, if we really want to make love, I would argue that we need to yield, whatever that looks like, however hard that might be. Because if we do, if we do, new life can come. I'll ask the worship team to come back forward in this because I recognize just in that and sometimes it's really powerful to to just even rest in the song of this worship as a way of creating just sort of fertile soil in the heart for that but my hope is in this and I don't know what it looks like 
for all of us. And again, I could stand there right down there with you because it's a daily, it's, it's part of why Paul says, guess what? I die daily. <laughs> you don't just get to yield one time. It is the posture of those who follow where they continue again and again and again, even though the pain feels like it's going to overwhelm, they continue to say, I will yield. I'll walk it out. I'll let this die so that new life can come. Death always begets life. And that life in this case, for those of you whose echoes of Eden have so failed and faded away, and who no longer know about life that is oneness and manyness, that is the heart of the life and the love and the joy of the Trinity, that maybe, just maybe, it's possible that we can learn once again to give our whole selves, body, mind, spirit, and soul, to another. It won't be easy, but it is indeed the echoes of Eden. And the way God created all of that, he said it was very good. It was very good.